You also got, uh, you have access to this, which is a sermon outline on the backside or some great discussion questions. So should you go to lunch after this and uh, you want to have a subject to talk about other than football or, I don't know, celebrities, then that's a great way to do that. And uh, I think it'll be a great help to you as we continue in our series through the book of Galatians. If you do have a Bible, and remember that means break out your Bible, and we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5. You probably don't know this about me, and uh, I've been sharing all day, and people have either laughed, snickered, or appreciated it, but I used to be in ROTC, and uh, when I was in ROTC, I was on the drill team, and what that means is I was a part of a unit that went around to different bases and whatnot, and we would actually um, enter in these competitions uh, and drill. That means marching around and, and all that kind of stuff, but I was also on the riflery drill team, which means I spun and flipped rifles. And uh, it was a fun time for me. And I had a drill sergeant, his name was Quan. And he was, uh, was an interesting uh, young guy. He was 16 years old, 17 years old, something like that. And he had like the deepest voice that no 16-year-old boy should ever have. It's like Barry White style. And he was able to project it. And I think that's why they made him the drill sergeant. So he always had this saying, whenever you messed up, he would always yell at you, you gotta get in step. And you're thinking, man, this is a 50-year-old like, man who's just been through it all. And you look, and it's like this fair-faced 16-year-old. And you're like, what in the world? How does this work? And so anyways, we were drilling one time. And I remember one of the guys next to me dropped his rifle. We're spinning it around, flipping it around. The dude dropped it. And you can just hear it. You better get in step. And I'm just thinking, I just don't want to be yelled at, you know? But anyways, I have that in the back of my mind when I read through Galatians 5 and I get to verse 25 where the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And the, the phrase keep in step is a military term. It really means to kind of get yourself in line. You need to know your role. You need to get into formation. You need to make sure that you're keeping in step with everyone else and in this case with the Spirit. And so what we're going to do is we're entering into this passage, which is really familiar to many of you, and it's in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. It involves the fruit of the Spirit, but the real emphasis for Paul is to help us understand that if you've been made alive by the Spirit, you need to keep in step with the Spirit. You need to stay in stride and stay in formation, so to speak. So let me read this, starting in verse 16. Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry and sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dis dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the, spirit, or, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so, Father, we are asking that you would help us today by teaching us all that we need to know. God, we know as we've been learning together in Galatians, and we know through the revelation in the New Testament that the Spirit's primary job is to help us to see Christ, to help us come out of darkness into light, to cause within us where we are no longer blind, but now we see. And when we behold Christ, the Spirit circumcises our hearts, and He empowers us to live obediently, loving you supremely and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And the Spirit gifts us with all kinds of gifts that we may serve the body and build up the church. The Spirit produces fruit in us so that the very life that we are meant to live is experienced by those around us and also those who are outside the church. 
that they have a, a glimpse of who you are. The Holy Spirit teaches us, gives us wisdom and discernment, enables us to behold the things in your word that we are to behold, helps us to know the deep things of God. And so I ask, Lord, that you would give us a fresh today, a pouring out of your spirit, so that we would have the mind of Christ, so that we would know the deep things of God, so that we would behold Christ. So God, we look to you, we commit these desires to you, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. This is one of the more famous sections in the book of Galatians, no doubt. Many of you are very aware of this section. You probably know this expression, familiarity breeds contempt. You heard that expression before? Really, the idea is this, is when you become overly familiar with something, you kind of lose respect for it. It loses its punch, so to speak. And so the fruit of the Spirit is one of those things. We have heard about it talked. We've heard it preached. We've heard it, I don't know, mentioned in casual conversation. And so at times when that happens, we become over-familiarized with it, and then it loses its punch. It loses its effect of, of kind of awakening us. And so I want to make sure that you're not uh, being, I don't know, contemptible, where you're not thinking, nah, I've already heard this before. I remember as a middle school pastor, the kids would ask me, what, what book of the Bible should I read? And I would tell them, like, Philippians or whatever, and they're like, oh, I already read that. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, so you've already plumbed the depths of all that can be known about that book? And they're like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's like, all right, man, jeez. So don't do that. Um, there is things we can learn new, uh, and then we can keep coming back and back and back to the Bible, and there's always something fresh and new that we can learn because the truth of God is inexhaustible. And so we can come to the Bible, Bible and we can expect and, and we can know that God is going to do something fresh. And I'm hoping and asking the Lord that that is what he's going to do today. Remember what Paul talked about last week. Paul was helping us understand a little bit more about our freedom. He said, for freedom you've been set free. Remember that? But then he said, within your freedom, you have an opportunity to do one of two things. You can either live for sin or you can live for Christ. You can either use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature into the flesh, or you can use your freedom to do what you were intended to do with your freedom, namely, to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God supremely. And so you have two options of what you can do. Remember what Paul wrote in chapter 5, verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so Paul said there's two ways you can live. You can live for sin or you can live for Christ. If you remember what it means to live for sin, it's basically this, is you are operating on the principle, your life for mine, which means I want you to sacrifice for me. I want your time to be sacrificed for my time. I want your interest to be sacrificed for my interest. I want you to make sure that your greatest desire is me, and that's sin. Whereas Christ lived a completely different life, it was not your life for mine. Jesus instead said, my life for yours. Sacrifice my life for you. I serve you. I'll give to you. And so that kind of life is a life of love. It's a life in which we are seeking to love our neighbors by loving them and serving them to a point of sacrifice where we feel it. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.1, and this is significant where he draws this conclusion about what it means to live as a Christian. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We all know that parents, you have to realize, your kids will emulate you. They will imitate you for better or worse. But because God is our father and we are his children, we should imitate him. And how does God... What kind of behavior should we imitate? It says in verse 2, and walk in love. And how should we love? How should we walk in love? It's as Christ loved. And how did Christ love? He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So since we've been adopted through the Spirit, Galatians 4, 4 through 6, we are now children of God, and therefore we should emulate our Father. We should imitate him in the way in which we love and the manner in which we are to love is by following the pattern that Christ Jesus set for us, and that is to lovingly serve our neighbors through sacrificial service. Remember, after all, Jesus bore our sins to Calvary. 
Now, my question is this. If, if that's two ways to live, you can live for Christ or you can live for sin. My question is, how in the world do we live for Christ and not live to sin? How do we live by the principle of my life for yours rather than your life for mine? How do we do that? And throughout this book of Galatians, there's been a lot of teaching on theological things. But now when we get to Galatians chapter 5 and 6, there's an immense amount of practicality. There's a lot of application here. And so what I, I've actually circled this day on my calendar. I could not wait to preach this because over the last 20 years that I've been a Christian, but especially the last 10 years, with an emphasis on the last five years, the Lord has been showing me things about the gospel and showing me things about scripture and showing me things about what it means to follow Christ. That it's, it's one of those aha moments. You're just, you're just thinking, oh, that's how you do it. And this passage and some of the things we're talking about this morning is exactly that. They're aha moments. They're opportunities that God will use to kind of shape and instruct us on how we ought to live in following Jesus. So this sermon is going to be incredibly practical, incredibly practical. So if you're a note taker, I would encourage you perhaps like, you know, ease up on the note taking and just sit here for a moment and listen. And you can get the sermon later. We have podcasts available and all that. But if you're a note taker and you're like, I can't think without writing, then write. It's all good. But I do want to say this is one of those sermons you may have to come back to over and over again. Not because it's great because of me or anything but it's just because of the scripture that is here you want to refer to it over and over again it's really important so how do we live for christ and not for sin how can we actually live where we're not living by the principle of sin but the principle of christ and to answer that question the apostle paul gives us verses 16 through 18 in verse 16 paul says but i say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh so that's one of his first answers. How do we live for Christ and not for sin? Answer, by walking by the Spirit. We have to walk by the Spirit. The phrase walk by the Spirit means something like yield to the Spirit. That's an ongoing day-by-day -day kind of thing where every day we are yielding, we are surrendering ourselves to the Holy Spirit in an ongoing way. Now why this is significant is because of what Paul promises that if we walk by the Spirit, he doesn't have an if there, but this is a truth. Walking by the Spirit, if, if that's a part of your life, you're yielding and surrendering to the Spirit, notice what he says, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Meaning, if you are so concerned with the things of the Spirit, you're walking by the Spirit, you will not gratify the flesh. If you're spending all of your time preoccupied with the Spirit, you don't have any time left to be preoccupied with the flesh. You just won't, you won't gratify it because the two are polar opposites. Remember how Paul talked about that. There's these two poles. It's the flesh or the spirit. It's life or it's death, that kind of thing. And he's continuing that if you walk by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, this is significant. Why it's significant is because in my experience, I often hear of men and women who are in accountability groups. And inevitably, when I ask what happens at your accountability group, it's usually people sit around in a circle and then they vomit their sins out to one another. And, and that can be a good thing. But then what I start to realize is you spend an hour, two hours at a coffee shop or somebody's home and all you're talking about is sin and the ways in which you sin and how you led to sin and the people who caused you to sin and, and all this kind of stuff. And then you're like, yeah, we'll pray. All right, what about you? Yeah, and uh, same thing. And you just keep going around and around. And you start realizing when all you do is talk about darkness, there's an issue. When all you do is talk about the sin, you're never really venturing into the world of solution. And I'll give you a practical example. If we darkened this building right now, we just cut out the lights completely. And then I said, man, I can't read my Bible now. Can somebody help me so I can see? We would think somebody is a crazy person. If they're like, I'll help you, and they reach into their bag or whatever, and they fluff out a garbage bag. And they're like, yeah, I'm just going to scoop out some of the darkness and they tie it up and then throw it outside. Is that better? Dude, what? Why is that? Because darkness is not a thing. It's the absence of a thing. Which means if you want to expel darkness, the only way to expel darkness is not to eliminate darkness, it's to add light. And when we add light, darkness runs, it flees. 
So if we're in these groups and we're, all we're doing is talking about darkness, talking about darkness, I have to ask the question, when is light going to come? When are we going to introduce light so that darkness would be expelled? In other words, in our groups, what we need to be doing is making sure that we are spending less time about our sin. Confess that. I'm a sinner. I'm rotten. I'm filthy. Here's why. But then we need to run, hightail it to Christ. Hightail it to the light. Treasure the gospel. Remember the things of the Spirit. Delight in the grace of God. Speak frequently about the grace and the love of God. And just in my circles, I just know we are so quick to talk about all kinds of sin. And when it comes to just boasting in Christ, oftentimes we have so little to say. No wonder why we can't overcome sin. We need more light. And so what Paul's saying is, if you're walking by the light, you won't worry about the darkness. You don't have enough time because you're preoccupied with the things of the Spirit. So what does it mean to put your mind on the Spirit? What does it mean to actually, like, you know, walk by the Spirit? How do you do that? What does that even look like? Well, Paul gives us some help in Romans chapter 8, in verses 5 to 6. He writes this. For those who live according to the flesh... They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So what does it mean to set your mind on the things of the Spirit? Well, if you remember what the Spirit's purpose is, remember Jesus sent the Spirit so that the Spirit would reveal Jesus. We remember that the Spirit was sent by Jesus so that we would, by the Spirit, be conformed to Jesus in the way in which we live and think and, and desire. It is by believing in Jesus that we receive the Holy Spirit. It's by continuing to believe in Jesus that we are supplied the Holy Spirit, Galatians 3.5. And when I put all that together, I start realizing it seems as if the Holy Spirit is preoccupied with Jesus. And if that's like what the Spirit is all about, then maybe by me walking by the Spirit, I should be preoccupied with Jesus as well. So maybe I should make it my ambition to know Christ. Maybe I should make it my ambition to grow in Christ. Maybe it should be me putting my mind on Christ, crucified and risen for my salvation. And that everything I do should be oriented to Christ. Whether you eat or drink or do whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's just constantly being profoundly Christ-centered that I think Paul, that's what he means by walking by the Spirit, by having the mind set on the Spirit. But if you remember, he says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Why is that true? It's true because if you're busy living to Christ, conversely, that means you're busy killing sin. Here's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, I always love buts, man. Good news coming. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do you live for Christ and not for sin? First, you have to be preoccupied with Christ. Keeping your mind on the things above, keeping your mind on Christ, keeping your mind on the things of the Spirit. And, and, and also, at the same time, we need to be actively killing sin. But the only way you can properly kill sin is, Romans 8.13, by the Spirit. Now, when you think about putting this together, here's how it works. When we realize our sin, confess our sin, and receive forgiveness from our sins, the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts, and we have a circumcision of the heart. And that circumcision of the heart enables us and empowers us to love God supremely and love our neighbor as ourselves. And being empowered to love God supremely and also our neighbor as ourselves, the Spirit also empowers us to identify sin in our life, see it, and then kill it. So we are without excuse who are Christians and have the indwelling spirit. We are without excuse when it comes to seeing sin and killing it. We can never say, I can't. Baloney, you can't. 
The Holy Spirit is given to you. One of the reasons is for that very purpose. You need to get busy killing sin. You need to make war on sin. And when we begin to make war on sin, and we are getting active in killing sin by the Spirit, which can only come from having our hearts circumcised, which only comes through believing in Jesus, which only comes through confessing our sins and repenting of our sins, then we will begin to live for Christ and not for sin. But you have to remember, as Romans 8, 8 says, those who are in the flesh, those who have not had a spiritual circumcision, they cannot please God. You cannot please God. You cannot love God supremely and you cannot love your neighbor as you ought to unless you have the Holy Spirit of God. And the only way to have the Holy Spirit is to repent of your sins, turn from your sins and turn to Christ and receive the Holy Spirit who will circumcise your heart, empower and enable you to live life in such a way that you love God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the only way. Now I know that pushback is like, wait a minute, are you telling me that I can't love people? I love people all the time. No, I get that. I'm not saying that human beings are void of love. I'm just saying the kind of love that we have because of sin distorts our love. And the distortion of our love and the disordering of our love means this. Instead of loving God supremely, we love pizza supremely. Or we love our family supremely. Or we love our job supremely. Or we love money supremely. Or we love our reputation supremely. And so God came incarnate in Jesus Christ to reorder our loves to put our hearts back the way they ought to be so that God is loved supremely and our neighbor is loved sacrificially. Which means until the Holy Spirit comes in your life, you cannot do that. You can't. Okay, so how, excuse me, why should we make war against the flesh? Why should we go about killing sin? Why do we need to even worry about this stuff? Isn't it better just to be, you know, like focus on being, you know, positive? Paul says, verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Why should we make war against the flesh? It's because the flesh and the spirit, your selfish ambitions and the principle on which all sin is built, is vitally, enthusiastically against the desires of the spirit and vice versa, which means there is no peace between the spirit and the flesh. There is a war instead because these two are incompatible. And what the spirit and the flesh are warring for, what they're trying to achieve and accomplish is our desires. Do you see that? To keep you from doing the things you want to do. You see, all of a sudden, you're kind of like, man, I really want to obey God. I really want to do the things of the Spirit. And so, as soon as you start doing that, next thing you know, your flesh creeps in. You start feeling sorry for yourself or you start feeling proud of yourself or whatever. And then, boom, you're right back into flesh stuff. And you're like, man. Or you're, you're like all sin stuff. I'm going to sin. Yeah, this is going to be good. And then all of a sudden, you sin and then you're done and you're like, well, I don't feel very good about that. Because the Spirit is not letting you enjoy that. And so there's constantly this friction of our desires. But not only that, we have to realize this. The flesh is in opposition to the spirit so that the desires you have to walk according to the spirit won't be realized. And at the same time, the spirit is in opposition to your flesh so that the desires you have to gratify your flesh or your sin won't become a reality either. Let me give you an example of how this works. (laughs) This is real life example. I've heard this before, and I'm not, like, I don't have anyone in mind. This is just a general kind of thing. Just imagine you just left church filled with the things of Christ. And you're just like, man, this was great. Seeing people, loving on people, praying, singing. It was fantastic. And you walk with your family, get into the car, and you're out the parking lot. But before you get out of the parking lot, you're already like, God, man, you guy cut me off. What's wrong with, what, what, how did And then all of a sudden, the kids are in the back seat. Nuh-uh, he took me. Nuh-uh, he's right, 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 right. And you're just like, oh, my goodness. 
And then all of a sudden you start to feel the rumble in your stomach because you're like, I'm hungry. And if I don't eat something soon, oh, it's going to be bad news for somebody. And then all of a sudden you get a little alert on your phone and then you realize, man, I just got 11 more emails. I have so many things to do this coming week. And then your fleshly desires begin to creep in. And here's what ends up happening. You're thinking, man, if I only had different kids, you know, like quiet kids, man. And if I only had some food right now, I'll tell you what. Or man, if my inbox was empty, I, that, then, then I would have peace. Then my life would be fine. And so we put all of our hope, because of our fleshly desires, we put all of our hope on empty inboxes, quiet children, and full tummies. But the Spirit is going to be in opposition to that, and the Spirit's going to come in, and He's going to do some work on you. And He's going to gently remind you, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Those kids in the backseat who are bickering, who you can't stand, you wish they would shut their mouths, they are gifts from God. God has given them to you to steward and to disciple in Christ-likeness. And so instead of bickering being a reason for you to get mad at them, instead it's an opportunity for you to teach the kids how to be like Jesus, have a gospel conversation, put your sister's needs before your own. And then all of a sudden your tummy is rumbling, you're like, I gotta get some food, I'm getting hangry. If I don't eat soon, I'm about to kick the window out and just run there or something. But then you're reminded by the Spirit, oh, man does not live on bread alone, but, but he lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so the hunger pains in me reminds me of my dependency on God and that I can eat to the glory of God. I can actually just say, God, thank you for my taste buds. This is great. Instead of being selfish and like self-loathing and pitiful, oh, I'm hungry. Instead, you can say, thank you, Lord, for food. And then all of a sudden in your inbox, right, you're like, what am I going to do? Instead of thinking, man, the empty inboxes, that's the only thing that will satisfy me. The spirit will come along and remind you, no, wait a minute, the inbox represents opportunities. The inbox represents the fact that in your family life and in your work life, God has placed you there for a reason to love and serve your neighbors through your work or through your responsibilities at work or in the family. And so the inbox is the opportunity for you to steward God's resources and the way in which he's gifted you in order to glorify God by loving and serving your neighbor. Do you see how opposite these things are? And so when we think about these things, we're, we're thinking, okay, I, I, hopefully you're like me. I, I feel that tension. I feel it. And then we get to verse 18, and, and, and Paul gives this condition. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He says, if. It's a condition. And because he puts a conditional statement here, if you are led by the Spirit, two things are true. If, which means you have the option to not do it, but you also have the responsibility to do it. If you are led by the Spirit, which means, all right, you cannot do this. You cannot be led by the Spirit. But if you are led by the Spirit means you do have a responsibility, however, to be led by the Spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to submit ourselves to God by actually living as free people. That is a responsibility we have, and we must obey it which means we must walk by the Spirit. We must be led by the Spirit. But what is our motivation to do so? This is key. What is our motivation to do so? Guilt? Fear? Shame? Oh, no, no, no. Just to prove to you that I'm not an ESV translation snob, I'm going to read from Romans 6, 12 to 14 out of the New Living Translation. I love this. Do not, Paul writes, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to your sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. For you are no longer, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, here's the greatest motivation. Instead, 
you live under the freedom of God's grace. What is our motivation? What is our reward? What is our incentive to take on the responsibility of walking and being led by the Spirit? The incentive, the motivation is this. You have been set free. Now you have to get the sequence right, brothers and sisters. Because we oftentimes talk, even in casual conversations like this, you need to stop sinning and you need to start walking by the Spirit so that you will be accepted by God. No. No, 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 no. Instead, Paul reverse engineers this and says, no, 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 no. The baseline is this. Through Christ, by faith in Him, His sufficiency to do all that is required to save me from my sins, because He has set me free, now I will go and wage war against sin and live for righteousness. Do you see the difference? One is works righteousness. One is law-based. And the other one is true gospel freedom. Now, is there anything we can use to help us kind of evaluate where we are? Are we living for sin? Are we living for flesh? Or are we living according to the Spirit? Like, how can we, you know, like tell? Is there anything we can do? And Paul's going to provide for us two lists. And by these lists, we can basically compare the way in which we live to these lists and then we can derive a conclusion of whether or not we're living for the spirit or the flesh and the first list he provides us is the works of the flesh he says in verse 19 now the works of the flesh are evident i love that he says evident because he wants us to know you don't have to go to a weekend seminar to figure this out You don't need to have a college degree. You don't need to have a PhD. You don't need to be a certain age. These are evident. They're like, duh, kind of stuff. And the first list is indicators that we are living according to the flesh. He puts it in three categories. First is sexual sins. He says sexual immorality which is a general term referring to people who have sexual intercourse with one another and yet are not married. Impurity, which is the filthiness that is generated from sexual sin. It's, we would use it in reference to brothels or sex slavery. He mentions sensuality, which is also indecency. It's the inability to restrain yourself regarding your sexual passions. And in the Greek context, and that word is often used in Greek literature and Greek culture, it's one who publicly flaunts their exploits sexually. The second category is idolatry with two words. He says idolatry, which is the quest to look to something or someone other than God for our identity and security and worth. And then he mentions sorcery. Sorcery is where we get the English word pharmacy. And it refers to the manipulation of physical things in order to accomplish one's purposes and, and, and get what one wants. And it was connected to witchcraft because witch were, witches were pro- professionals at taking natural things and creating lethal concoctions to poison rivals or anyone else who's undesirable. And so if you ever wanted to kind of get rid of somebody in order to get something that you want, um, you would practice sorcery. And so the... Uh, present-day equivalent would be abortion or euthanasia. It's the idea of manipulating physical circumstances and creating a lethal means by procedure, a a performed procedure by an expert to get rid of something which is inconvenient. The last category are social sins. Paul says enmity, and you can kind of see the word enemy embedded in that. It's hatred for political, racial, or religious rivals. You have strife, which is the idea of being quarrelsome. If you have breath in your lungs, you're going to argue with somebody about something. Jealousy is the idea of selfish promotion. You can't stand being second. You've got to be first. Fits of anger is the idea of outrage. We live in an outrage culture. Everyone's outraged about something. Every day you wake up and you check Twitter and you're like, oh, I'm outraged. (laughs) Then that creates rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. These things happen when one wants to get ahead of others at the expense of the other in hopes of creating exclusive parties, and we would call them cliques. Then there's envy, which is 
If you don't win, you want to make sure that the other people you are competing with don't win either. You cannot rejoice in other people's happiness. Drunkenness, you're obviously drunk. Orgies, it's another way of saying carousing. It's the idea of participating in wild drinking parties in the public uh, and being made public doing so. So as with Paul, so it is with us. Here's the reality. These, this, this list of stuff is not hard for us to identify. It's obvious. It doesn't take a great deal of self-introspection, like you need to go on a week-long you know, personal retreat to see if these things are true in your life. No, 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 just te- check your social media feed. You'll find out. It's real easy. And then Paul gives the sober warning in verse 21. He says this at the end of verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. You just won't inherit the kingdom of God. You see, a practice of living like this means you have no reason to anticipate or hope for heaven. Does this mean that anyone who is guilty of any of these things, does that mean that they're going to hell? I want us instead to think about it like this. Anyone who is guilty of the things listed in this list here, they are deserving of hell. Anyone who's guilty of this list deserves hell. And for this reason, there's not a single one of us who should ever wink at sin. There's not any of us, regardless of your religious affiliation, whether or not you would identify as a Christian or not. There's no way Knowing that if we live like this or are guilty of anything on this list, that we're deserving of hell, there's no way that we can go, oh well. But here's the thing. If you are a Christian, which means you recognize that you have offended a holy God, that you're guilty of some of the things or many of these things or at least one of these things in this list. And remember what Paul says uh, and those who do such things, which means there's other things that could be listed, but I mean, how long do you have? <laughs> And if you recognize your sin and you recognize that you are deserving of hell, but you have heard the reality that if you will confess your sins and you will repent, and instead you will turn to Christ knowing that in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he has accomplished everything that is required in order to save those who will come to him by faith. And if you have surrendered yourself knowing that and trusting that you have repented and believed the gospel, then even though you deserve hell, you won't receive it. Instead, you will receive what you do not deserve. What is it that nobody deserves? Heaven. And the very definition of an undeserved gift is grace. So we as Christians are receiving heaven not because we deserve it, but in fact what we deserve most is hell. But what we are receiving, which is grace upon grace, unfathomable reality is we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. We're receiving heaven. And it's not because we have earned it or we deserved it. Quite the contrary. So I would appeal to you who aren't Christians. You are in the same fate that we once were as Christians. We deserve hell. And so I would implore you, you have to repent and believe in Jesus. You have to. And if you do, I'm telling you, if you do, you're going to receive what you don't deserve. You're going to receive a kingdom. You're going to receive salvation. You're going to receive forgiveness. Jesus has done everything for you. You just got to trust him. And he'll do it. Now, the Greek verb here for whoever does these things, the Greek verb here, who does such things, is a verb describing habitual action. It's the action which is a result because of a devotion to a thing. So if you're devoted to the flesh, these habitual practices will be evident. We as Christians from time to time will be guilty of some of these things. What do we do when we are guilty of such things? What do we do? Kill it. Make war. Kill the sin. Make war on the flesh. 
You've got to get active, take responsibility, and put to death sin. So, as Christians, we can never utter the excuse, well, I can't. No, 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 no. You have the Holy Spirit, therefore, oh yes, you can. You just won't. So repent and kill sin. Now he gives us a second list, which is fruit of the Spirit. He said, but the fruit of the Spirit, here's another list that you can kind of evaluate yourself. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I want you to see the contrast in these two lists. One is in the plural. These are works of the flesh, whereas the other is singular. This is the fruit of the Spirit. One involves works. The other one is fruit. One is about the flesh. The other one is about the Spirit. And what I would say is the list of the fruit of the Spirit is a set of character traits, which are habits of the heart that the Spirit produces in us. And if you notice, it says the fruit of the Spirit. It's in Greek, it's called the genitive form, which means this. The product, which is fruit, is generated by the subject, spirit. Which means no human being can produce the fruit. It is completely and utterly and totally a work of the Spirit. Nobody can produce the fruit of the Spirit. Tracking with me, church? Got to get that in our minds. But here's the reality. If the Spirit alone produces these fruits, does that mean we have no responsibility? Do we just let go and let God? I'll just let Jesus take the wheel or whatever. No. We've already talked about if you are led by the Spirit, there is responsibility. I love what Jerry Bridges writes. He writes this, we have a responsibility to pursue these habits of grace, but we are dependent upon God in our pursuit. Brothers and sisters, listen carefully. You do not produce the fruits of the Spirit, and yet at the same time, you do pursue the fruits of the Spirit. Do you see the difference? You do not produce them, but you do, in fact, pursue them. How? How? Jerry Bridges goes on to say the fruit of the Spirit, which is the habit of grace, these fruits of the Spirit are the result of individual Christians seeking to grow under the direction and aid of the Holy Spirit in every area of Christian character. They are something that is produced as you seek to grow in Christ. Philip Graham Ryken gives us a warning, though. He says, if we think of this list as a how-to guide for the Christian life, we are in danger of slipping back into a works righteousness mentality. Instead, the Spirit works into us those dispositions that lead to godliness. His fruit, which are the habits of our hearts, they will produce a rich harvest of loving obedience. So be warned, we can't produce the fruit, we only pursue it, and we pursue it by walking according to the Spirit. But you must be warned, this list of the fruit of the Spirit is not a how-to list, because if you pursue the, the fruit of the Spirit as a how-to list, you're going to fall right back into what Paul's been saying about the law and about works righteousness. So what do we do? For the last 10 years or so, I've been beating my head and trying to figure this out. And for the last five years or so, finally the Lord is letting me kind of see and it's bubbling to the top and it's becoming clearer and clearer in my mind. <gasps> oh, and here's what I found. How do you do this? Philippians 2 verse 12, at the very end, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out, that is you, you need to do something. You need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
You have a responsibility. Work it out. Work it out. But then verse 13, here's the key. For or because it is God who works in you. Both to will, that means desire, and to work, that means action, for his good pleasure. Which means this, brothers and sisters, just imagine for a moment, we understand the whole faith thing. You've heard the story of you have a little kid on the side of the pool and you're like, jump. And they're like, no. You're like, jump. Daddy will catch you. I promise. Okay, do you believe me? Yes, then jump. No. And you're like, all right, you don't have faith in me. You you get that. So if I'm preaching right here and I'm like, I have faith, everyone, I'm going to walk off this stage. All of you will go, whoa, (laughs) I don't want to watch that. He's going to hurt himself. But let's just imagine that we understand faith is this, is, is, is the idea of I'm going to walk, I'm going to step out in faith with the trust that what God has promised me will come true. And so if I'm walking by the Spirit, I'm walking off what I can see in order to walk where I can't see. I've walked by faith, not by sight. You guys know what I'm talking about. So if I'm going to take this step off, I have to take the step and I can't see it. I don't know what God's going to do. But I'm going to trust his promise that when I take my step and I'm going to let my full weight just land there, God will be there to support me. And so every step I take by faith, God is there every time. And he's helping me walk every single time. So that as I walk by faith and as I'm working out my salvation, the reason why I'm working is because I know he's at work. So the work God will do is this, as you walk and trust his promises and trust his grace and trust fixing your minds on Christ, walking by faith, being led by the spirit, all this kind of stuff, God will be working. God will be working. New desires, new acts. God will be there every time to work and conform you to the image of Christ. But you have to get about doing the work. What is the work? You better start killing sin. You better start killing sin. You better start waging war on the flesh and focusing your mind and attention and affections on the person of Christ. Live for righteousness and make war on the flesh. But here's the reality at the end of verse 23. You can't do this according to the law. He says this, against such things there's no law. You cannot legislate the fruit of the Spirit. You can't law people into transformation only the holy spirit can transform us that's why the apostle paul writes in romans chapter 8 verse 2 through 4 for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in christ jesus from the law of sin and death for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh why in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit has set you free in order for you to obey God by the Spirit. And how we obey God by the Spirit is to love God supremely and love our neighbor as ourselves. But we must, be, we must get busy killing sin and living to righteousness. Now, brothers and sisters, I can tell you over the last several years, I know this is true. I know this is how God works. I know it. And I know it because that's been my life. Twelve years ago, I applied to become the young adult pastor here at Golden Hills. And I had multiple interviews, and Pastor Larry and Pastor Phil and many others, they did not want to hire me. And they had good reason, but they did it anyways. I'm grateful. But the reason they didn't want to hire me is I was told as I sat in Pastor Larry's office, we don't know if you're the right guy. You're too harsh. You're too impatient. You have hard edges, and we just don't think this is a good fit. And so they gambled, so to speak, and they hired me anyways. I remember going home, and I was like, Heather, you won't believe what they told me. (laughs) They said this. You believe that? And my loving wife, oh, what a good helper. She's fit for me. She said, I can believe that. (laughs) But she said it in the most gentle way imaginable. And then that was one of the first times I went, for real? 
They just need to get over it. This is who I am. I can't be anyone other than me. (laughs) So I got hired. And there were some men in our ministry that the Lord raised up, some young adults, no joke, 19, 20, 21-year-old men. And the Lord used them. So I would preach and I would pray and I would do what I was doing as a pastor. And these men, Cole, Brad, Joe, Cam, Marcelo, they would come alongside of me from time to time. And they're like, dude, I, didn't, I don't think the way that you spoke to that person was probably the right way to do that. I don't think that was right. And I'm thinking, who, who do you think you are? 21-year-old whippersnapper, you think you know everything. And then great men on our staff, Pastor Larry, Pastor Phil, Pastor David, Pastor Brian Beekhouse, from time to time would come alongside of me and they would say, you know, in this situation, I don't think this was the right thing. And so over a period of time, I started to realize, wait a minute, maybe I am this way. Maybe I am what they say I am. And so I started to realize they're right. So I asked these men, would you commit to pray with me? So on Tuesday nights, we used to meet in one of the rooms, and so they would commit to pray for me. I would pray for me, and we would pray that the Lord would change me. And I remember praying all the time, God, give me, give me, give me, give me, and then it hit me. Man, if I only ask for God to give me, I think that, I think that it's some kind of outside thing that God is going to supernaturally just pop on me, and it's like, oh, okay. And I started to change the way I prayed, and I started to pray, Lord, make me. God, you have to make me patient. You have to make me gentle. And so these men, they decided to pray for me, and I prayed for me. My wife was praying, and I had countless people praying, and I'm repenting, and I'm confessing, and I'd be harsh to somebody, and then somebody would say, you were harsh, and I would go immediate to them, and I would say, I was harsh with you. I I apologize. That's horrible of me. And so over the last 10 years, what the Lord has been doing in my own life is just sanctifying me and changing me and and. And making me softer and making me gentler and the edges are starting to be rounded off. And so I'm not speaking to somebody who's like better than anybody else. I'm a beggar. I'm just trying to help other beggars find bread. And this is the bread that I found. That when I surrounded myself with men who love me, my wife who just loves me, who speaks these true words to me, and I diligently decide I'm about to put to death sin. I'm tired of this nonsense. I'm going to try to live to righteousness sake. What ended up happening is I'd find myself in these situations where I have every incentive to do harsh things. And I would pray as Nehemiah prayed, quick prayer, Lord, help me in this moment. I'm about to act a fool. And then I would obediently, as best I could, manufacture all the faith I could. And in that moment, I would be gentle. And slowly but surely, the Lord transformed me. And what ended up happening... And what ended up happening is I found I couldn't excuse my sin anymore. I used to say, well, that's just the way I am. And I started to realize, yeah, but that's not the way Jesus is. Jesus isn't harsh. Jesus isn't impatient. And therefore, if I'm going to be his spokesperson and try to be conformed to his image, how in the world can I just keep saying, that's just the way I am, get over it? I need to repent. And so Paul says in verse 24, those who belong to Jesus Christ, they have been crucified with the flesh, with its passions and desires. He says in Galatians 2.20 that we have been crucified with Christ. There's a passive thing that is happening to us. We are being crucified with Christ. The Holy Spirit is being poured into our hearts. The love of God is being poured into our hearts, Romans 5.5. But now in verse 24, he says, if you belong to Jesus because you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you have to get busy crucifying the flesh. You've got to get busy crucifying the passions and your desires. Put them to death. That's our responsibility. But all along the way, we know God is at work. Every time I wield that sword and put sin to death, and every time I slay my desires, Christ is at work. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, if the Spirit has made us alive together with Christ, we need to keep in step with Him. Allow the Holy Spirit, yield to Him every day. 
Allow him to put to death sin in your life by the Spirit, kill it, and live to righteousness. And then Paul ends with a very strange sentence. He says this, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Why would Paul end this way? Hey, don't be proud and don't be envious. After he just got done talking about the Spirit, why would he do that? Here's why I think. When we're together with other Christians and somehow we're starting to kill sin and we're starting to like feel good about ourselves, man, I got this together. I'm starting to figure this out. This is awesome. Pretty soon the pride starts to well up. And you're like, man, I got my act together. I know what's up. I'm doing a good job. And then somebody says, I'm not doing a good job. I'm having a hard time. And you're kind of secretly thinking, you just need to get your act together. He's lame. He's and that pride. And so Paul says, don't be conceited. Or the other side is envious. So you are that person that can't get their act together. And you're looking at the other person who's like, man, I've been killing sin. I've been killing it. And you're sitting there like, man, I feel helpless. I feel horrible. And you're making it worse. I hope you fall. <laughs> you, Mr. I know the Bible. I'm about to Google something. I'm going to show you you're wrong. So when envy person and pride person get together in a group, how do you think that group's going to fare? Paul says it's going to be provocation. There's going to be strife. So brothers and sisters, let us remember this, Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained all this. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Like I said, I'm just a beggar helping other beggars find food. But I press on, Paul says, to make it my own. I I press on. I'm going to work. I'm not going to quit. And why not? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I'm going to work hard because Christ has made me his own. I'm not going to work hard in order for Christ to make me his own. But because I'm already his, I'm going to work out my salvation. And he's going to help me all the way. Spiritual growth will last a lifetime, brothers and sisters. And so you can't fast forward or microwave it. It took me 12 years to get where I'm at, and some of you are thinking, geez, you got about 20 more years left, son. <laughs> you got a long way to go, and I would say, I know. I know. But you know what? That's why I love the local church. Had it not been for Cam and Brad, had it not been for Marcelo and Joe and Brian and Larry and Phil and David, had it not been for those men in the local church to walk alongside of me, I would not have grown. Brothers, let us help one another. Sisters, help one another. Brothers and sisters, help one another. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I want to end with Ephesians 4 to talk about the centrality of the church and to remind ourselves of what God is doing. Therefore, Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, I, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to our call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 15 and 16. And therefore, speaking the truth in love, we, the church, are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part, each person of the church, each member of the church is working properly, will make the whole church grow so that the church builds itself up in love. Brothers and sisters, I commit to you as your pastor, I will equip you to the best of my ability to help you love one another well. But your responsibility is to love one another well. I will do my part. You will do your part. And as the parts are working properly, our church will grow in love. So, Father, we lay these things before you and we ask, God, that you would once again fill us with your spirit. God, grant us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the spirit. And God, grant us, those who recognize their shortcomings and their failures, grant us your grace so that by your grace we will be strengthened and by your grace we will press on, that we will fight the good fight, 
that we will wage the good warfare, that we will put to death sin by the Spirit so that we will live to righteousness. God, reorder our loves, I pray. Grant us to love you supremely and to love our neighbors ourselves. Help us to walk as Jesus walked. And I pray, Lord, that you do all of these things for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.